What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Introduction Part 1 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 1837-1846. to this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Phyllis Vincelli. The Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 1837 1846, by Henry David Thoreau. Introduction, Part 1. Thoreau was a man of his own kind. Many things may be said of him, favorable and unfavorable, but this must surely be said first, that, taken for all in all, he was like nobody else. Taken for all in all, be it remarked. Other men have despised common sense. Other men have chosen to be poor, and as between physical comfort and better things have made light of physical comfort. Other men, whether to their credit or discredit, have held and expressed a contemptuous opinion of their neighbors and all their neighbors' doings. Others, a smaller number, believing in an absolute goodness and in a wisdom transcending human knowledge, have distrusted the world as evil, accounting its influence degrading, its prudence no better than cowardice, its wisdom a kind of folly, its morality a compromise, its religion a bargain, its possessions a defilement and a hindrance, and so judging of the world, have striven at all cost to live above it and apart. And some, no doubt, have loved nature as a mistress, fleeing to her from less congenial company, and devoting a lifetime to the observation and enjoyment of her ways. In no one of these particulars was the hermit of Walden without forerunners, but taken for all that he was, poet, idealist, stoic, cynic, naturalist, spiritualist, lover of purity, seeker of perfection, panegyrist of friendship, and dweller in a hermitage, free thinker and saint, where shall we look to find his fellow? it seems but the plainest statement of fact to say that as there was none before him so there is scanty prospect of any to come after him his profession was literature as to that there is no sign that he was ever in doubt and he understood from the first that for a writing man nothing could take the place of practice partly because that is the one means of acquiring ease of expression, and partly because a man often has no suspicion of his own thoughts 
until his pen discovers them. And almost from the first, a friend, Emerson or another, having given him the hint, he had come to feel that no practice is better or readier than the keeping of a journal, a daily record of things thought, seen, and felt. Such a record he began soon after leaving college, and being one of a thousand in this respect as in others, he continued it to the end. By good fortune he left it behind him, and to complete the good fortune it is at last printed, no longer in selections but as a whole. And if a man is curious to know what such an original, plain-spoken, perfection-seeking, convention-despising, dogma-disbelieving, wisdom-loving, sham-hating, nature-worshipping, poverty-proud genius was in the habit of confiding to so patient a listener at the close of the day, he has only to read the book. The man himself is there. Something of him, indeed, is to be discovered, one half imagines, in the outward aspect of the thirty-nine manuscript volumes, ordinary blank books of the sort furnished by country shopkeepers fifty or sixty years ago, larger or smaller, as might happen, and of varying shapes. A customer seeking such wares must not be too particular. One remembers Thoreau's complaint that the universal preoccupation with questions of money rendered it difficult for him to find a blank book that was not ruled for dollars and cents, still neatly packed in the strong wooden box which their owner, a workman needing not to be ashamed, made with his own hands on purpose to hold them. A pretty full result of a short life they seem to be, as one takes up volume after volume, the largest are found to contain about a hundred thousand words, and turns the leaves, the handwriting strong and rapid, leaning well forward in its haste, none too legible, slow reading at the best, with here and there a word that is almost past making out, the orthography that of a naturally good speller setting down his thoughts at full speed and leaving his mistakes behind him, and the punctuation, to call it such, no better than a makeshift, after the model of Stearns, if one chooses to say so, a spattering of dashes and little else. As for the matter, it is more carefully considered, less strictly improvised, than is customary with diarists. It is evident, in fact, from references here and there, that many of the entries were copied from an earlier penciled draft, made presumably in the field with the eye on the object while the work as a whole has been more or less carefully revised with erasures, emendations, and suggested alternative readings. As we have said, if a man wishes to know Thoreau as he was, 
let him read the book. One thing he may be sure of, he will find himself in clean, self-respecting company, with no call to blush, as if he were playing the eavesdropper. Of confessions, indeed, in the spicy sense of the word, Thoreau had none to make. He was no Montaigne, no Rousseau, no Samuel Pepys. How should he be? He was a Puritan of Massachusetts, though he kept no Sabbath, was seen in no church, being very different from Mr. Pepys in more ways than one, and esteemed the Hebrew scriptures as a good book like any other. Once, indeed, when he was thirty-four years old, he went to a party. For anything we know, that— with a little sowing of wild oats in the matter of smoking dried lily stems when a boy, was as near as he ever came to dissipation, and he did not like it. It is a bad place to go to, he says. Thirty or forty persons, mostly young women, in a small room, warm and noisy. One of the young women was reputed to be pretty-looking but he scarcely looked at her, though he was introduced, and he could not hear what she said, because there was such a clacking. I could imagine better places for conversation, he goes on, where there should be a certain degree of silence surrounding you, and less than forty talking at once. Why, this afternoon, even, I did better— there was old Mr. Joseph Hosmer and I ate our luncheon of cracker and cheese together in the woods. I heard all he said, though it was not much, to be sure, and he could hear me. And then he talked out of such a glorious repose, taking a leisurely bite at the cracker and cheese between his words, and so some of him was communicated to me, and some of me to him, I trust. He entertains a shrewd suspicion that assemblies of this kind are got up with a view to matrimonial alliances among the young people. For his part, at all events, he doesn't understand the use of going to see people whom yet you never see, and who never see you. Some of his friends make a singular blunder. They go out of their way to talk to pretty women as such. Their prettiness may be a reason for looking at them, so much he will concede, for the sake of the antithesis, if for nothing else. But why is it any reason for talking to them? For himself, though he may be lacking a sense in this respect, he derives no pleasure from talking with a young woman half an hour simply because she has regular features. How crabbed is divine philosophy! After this, we are not surprised when he concludes by saying, The society of young women is the most unprofitable I have ever tried. No, no, he was nothing like Mr. Samuel Pepys. The sect of young women, we may add, 
need not feel deeply affronted by this ungallant mention. It is perhaps the only one of its kind in the journal, by its nature restricted to matters interesting to the author, while there are multitudes of passages to prove that Thoreau's aversion to the society of older people taken as they run, men and women alike, was hardly less pronounced. In truth, and it is nothing of necessity against him, he was not made for parties, nor for clubs, nor even for general companionship. I am all without and in sight, said Montaigne, born for society and friendship. So was not Thoreau. He was all within, born for contemplation and solitude. And what we are born for, that let us be and so the will of God be done. Such, for good or ill, was Thoreau's philosophy. We are constantly invited to be what we are, he said. It is one of his memorable sentences, an admirable summary of Emerson's essay on self-reliance. His fellow mortals, as a rule, did not recommend themselves to him, his thoughts were none the better for their company, as they almost always were for the company of the pine-tree and the meadow. Inspiration, a refreshing of the spiritual faculties, as indispensable to him as daily bread, that his fellow mortals did not furnish him. For this state of things he sometimes, once or twice at least, mildly reproaches himself. It may be that he is to blame for so commonly skipping humanity and its affairs. He will seek to amend the fault he promises. But even at such a moment of exceptional humility, his pen, reversing Balaam's role, runs into left-handed compliments that are worse, if anything, than the original offense hear him. I will not avoid to go by where those men are repairing the stone bridge. I will see if I cannot see poetry in that, if that will not yield me a reflection. It is narrow to be confined to woods and fields and grand aspects of nature only. Why not see men standing in the sun and casting a shadow, even as trees? I will try to enjoy them as animals, at least. This is in 1851. A year afterward, we find him concerned with the same theme, but in a less hesitating mood. Now he is on his high horse, with apologies to nobody. It appears to me, he begins, that to one standing on the heights of philosophy, mankind and the works of man will have sunk out of sight altogether. Man, in his opinion, is too much insisted upon. The poet says, the proper study of mankind is man. I say, study to forget all that. Take wider views of the universe. What is the village, city, state, 
nation, I, the civilized world, that it should concern a man so much. The thought of them affects me in my wisest hours, as when I pass a woodchuck's hole. A high horse indeed. But his comparison is really by no means so disparaging as it sounds. For Thoreau took a deep and lasting interest in woodchucks. At one time and another he wrote many good pages about them. For their reappearance in the spring he watched as for the return of a friend and once, at least, he devoted an hour to digging out a burrow and recording with painstaking minuteness the course and length of its ramifications. A novelist, describing his heroine's boudoir, could hardly have been more strict with himself. In fact, to have said that one of Thoreau's human neighbors was as interesting to him as a woodchuck would have been to pay that neighbor a rather handsome compliment. None of the brute animals, so-called, we have it on his own authority, ever vexed his ears with pomposity or nonsense. But we have interrupted his discourse midway. I do not value any view of the universe unto which man and the institutions of man enter very largely he continues man is a past phenomenon to philosophy then he descends a little to particulars some rarely go outdoors most are always at home at night concord people being uncommonly well brought up it would appear very few indeed have stayed out all night once in their lives Fewer still have gone behind the world of humanity and seen its institutions like toadstools by the wayside. And then, having with this good bit of philosophical tall talk brushed aside humanity as a very little thing, he proceeds to chronicle the really essential facts of the day that he landed that afternoon on Tall's Island, and to his disappointment found the weather not cold or windy enough for the meadow to make its most serious impression. Also, that the staddles from which the hay had been removed were found to stand a foot or two above the water, besides which he saw cranberries on the bottom, although he forgot to mention them in their proper place, and noticed that the steam of the engine looked very white that morning against the hillside. All which setting of ordinary valuations topsy-turvy, the lords of creation below the beasts that perish, may lead an innocent reader to exclaim with one of old, Lord, what? is man, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visitest him. Nevertheless, we must not treat the matter too lightly, easily as it lends itself to persiflage. Even in this extreme instance, it is not to be assumed 
that Thoreau was talking for the sake of talking, or merely keeping his hand in with his favorite rhetorical weapon, a paradox. That desiderated, serious impression, at all events, was no laughing matter. Rather, it was to have been the chief event of the day, of more account to Thoreau than dinner and supper both were likely to be to his farmer neighbor. As for the woodchuck, its comparative rank in the scale of animal existence, be it higher or lower, is nothing to the purpose. For Thoreau, it was simple truth that on some days, and in some states of mind, he found the society of such a cave-dweller more acceptable, or less unacceptable, than that of any number of his highly civilized townsmen. Nor is the statement one to be nervously concerned about. Any inveterate stroller, the most matter-of-fact man alive, though matter-of-fact men are not apt to be strollers, might say the same in all soberness, with no thought of writing himself down a misanthrope or of setting himself up as a philosopher. For one thing, the woodchuck is sure to be less intrusive, less distracting, than the ordinary human specimen. He fits in better with solitude and the solitary feeling. He is never in the way. Moreover, you can say to a woodchuck anything that comes into your head without fear of giving offense. A less important consideration than the other, no doubt, woodchucks as a class not being remarkably conversable, but still worthy of mention. For, naturally enough, an outspoken freethinker like Thoreau found the greater number of men not so very different from ministers, of whom he said, in a tone of innocent surprise, that they could not bear all kinds of opinions, as if any sincere thought were not the best sort of truth. He walked one afternoon with Alcott, and spent an agreeable hour, though for the most part he preferred having the woods and fields to himself. Alcott was an ineffectual genius, he remarks, for ever feeling about vainly in his speech and touching nothing. One thinks of Arnold's characterization of Shelley as a beautiful and ineffectual angel, beating in the void his luminous wings in vain, which, in its turn, may call to mind Lowell's comparison of Shelley's genius to a St. Elmo's fire, playing an ineffectual flame about the points of his thought. But, after all, he was good company. Not quite so good as none, of course, but on the whole, as men go, rather better than most. At least he would listen to what you had to offer. He was open-minded. He wasn't shut up in a creed. An honest man's thought would not shock him. You could talk to him without running up against some institution. In a word, 
though Thoreau doesn't say it, he was something like a woodchuck. With all his passion for that glorious society called solitude, and with all his feeling that mankind, as a past phenomenon, thought far too highly of itself, it is abundantly in evidence that Thoreau, in his own time and on his own terms, was capable of a really human delight in familiar intercourse with his fellows. Channing, who should have known, speaks a little vaguely, to be sure, of his fine social qualities. Always a genial and hospitable entertainer, he calls him. And Mr. Ricketson, who also should have known, assures us that no man could hold a finer relationship with his family than he. But of this aspect of his character, it must be acknowledged, there is comparatively little in the journal. What is very constant and emphatic here, emphatic sometimes to the point of painfulness, is the hermit's hunger and thirst after friendship, a friendship the sweets of which, so far as appears, he was very sparingly to enjoy. For if he was at home in the family group and in huckleberry excursions with children, if he relished to the full to talk with a stray fisherman, a racy-tongued woodchopper, or a good Indian, something very different seems to have been habitual with him when it came to intercourse with equals and friends. Here, even more than elsewhere, he was an uncompromising idealist. His craving was for friendship more than human, friendship such it was beyond any one about him to furnish, if it was not, as may fairly be suspected, beyond his own capacity to receive. In respect to outward things, his wealth, he truly said, was to want little. In respect to friendship, his poverty was to want the unattainable. It might have been retorted upon him in his own words that he was like a man who should complain of hard times because he could not afford to buy himself a crown. But the retort would perhaps have been rather smart than fair. He, at least, would never have acquiesced in it. He confided to his journal again and again that he asked nothing of his friends but honesty, sincerity, a grain of real appreciation, an opportunity once in a year to speak the truth. But in the end, it came always to this, that he insisted upon perfection, and not finding it, went on his way hungry. Probably it is true, one seems to divine a reason for it, that idealists, claimers of the absolute, have commonly found their fellow men a disappointment. End of Introduction, Part 1《Introduction Part Two of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume One, eighteen 
1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction, Part 2. In Thoreau's case, it was his best friends who most severely tried his patience. They invite him to see them, he complains, and then do not show themselves. He pines and starves near them. All is useless. They treat him so that he feels a thousand miles off. I leave my friends early. I go away to cherish my idea of friendship. Surely there is no sentence in all Thoreau's books that is more thoroughly characteristic than that. And how neatly it is turned. Listen also to this, which is equally bitter and almost equally perfect in the phrasing. No fields are so barren to me as the men of whom I expect everything but get nothing. In their neighborhood I experience a painful yearning for society. It is all a mystery to him. How happens it, he exclaims, that I find myself making such an enormous demand on men and so constantly disappointed? Are my friends aware how disappointed I am? Is it all my fault? am i incapable of expansion and generosity i shall accuse myself of anything else sooner and again he goes away sorrowful consoling himself as best he can with his own paradox i might have loved him had i loved him less Strange that he should have suffered in this way, many will think, with Emerson himself for a friend and neighbor. Well, the two men were friends, but neither was in this relation quite impeccable, which is as much as to say that both were human. And to judge by such hints as are gatherable on either side, their case was not entirely unlike that of Bridget Elia and her cousin, generally in harmony with occasional bickerings as it should be among near relations, though bickerings is no doubt an undignified term for use in this connection. It is interesting, some may deem it amusing, to put side by side the statements of the two men upon this very point. Emerson's communicated to the public shortly after his friend's death, the rose entrusted nine years before to the privacy of his journal. Emerson's speech is the more guarded, as for more reasons than one it might have been expected to be. His friend, he confesses, was somewhat military in his nature, always manly and able, but rarely tender, as if he did not feel himself except in opposition. He wanted a fallacy to expose, a blunder to pillory, I may say required a little sense of victory a roll of the drum, to call his powers into full exercise. 
it seemed as if his first instinct on hearing a proposition was to controvert it so impatient was he of the limitations of our daily thought this habit of course is a little chilling to the social affections and though the companion would in the end acquit him of any malice or untruth yet it mars conversation hence no equal companion stood in affectionate relations with one so pure and guileless the rose entry is dated may twenty fourth eighteen fifty three talked or tried to talk with r w e lost my time nay almost my identity he assuming a false opposition where there was no difference of opinion, talked to the wind, told me what I knew, and I lost my time trying to imagine myself somebody else to oppose him. It is the very same picture, drawn by another pencil, with a different placing of the shadows. And since the two sketches were made so many years apart, and yet seems to be descriptive of the same thing, it is perhaps fair to conclude that this particular interview, which appears to have degenerated into something like a dispute about nothing, a very frequent subject of disputes, by the way, was not exceptional, but rather typical. Without doubt, this was one of the occasions when Thoreau felt himself treated as if he were a thousand miles off, and went home early to cherish his idea of friendship. Let us hope that he lost nothing else along with his time and identity. But here again we are in danger of an unseasonable lightness. Friendship according to Thoreau's apprehension of it, was a thing infinitely sacred. A friend might move him to petulance, as the best of friends sometimes will, but friendship, the ideal state shown to him in dreams, for speech concerning that there was nowhere in English, nor anywhere else, a word sufficiently noble and unsoiled and even his friends he loved, although, tongue-tied New Englander that he was, he could never tell them so. He loved them best, and this likewise was no singularity, when they were farthest away. In company, even in their company, he could never utter his truest thought. So it is with us all. It was a greater than Thoreau who said, We descend to meet, and greater still, perhaps, and he also a Concord man, who confessed at fifty-odd, I doubt whether I have ever really talked with half a dozen persons in my life. As for Thoreau, he knew at times, and owned as much to himself, that his absorption in nature tended to unfit him for human society. But so it was. He loved to be alone. And in this respect he had no thought of change. 
no thought nor wish. Whatever happened, he would still belong to no club but the true country club, which dined at the sign of the shrub oak. The field and the woods, the old road, the river, and the pond, these were his real neighbors. Year in and year out, how near they were to him, a nearness unspeakable, till sometimes it seemed as if their being and his were not two, but one and the same. With them was no frivolity, no vulgarity, no changeableness, no prejudice. With them he had no misunderstandings, no meaningless disputes, no disappointments. They knew him and were known of him. In their society he felt himself renewed. There he lived and loved his life. There, if anywhere, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Hear him on a cool morning in August, with the wind in the branches and the crickets in the grass, and think of him, if you can, as a being too cold for friendship. My heart leaps out of my mouth at the sound of the wind in the woods. I, whose life was but yesterday so desultory and shallow, suddenly recover my spirits, my spirituality, through my hearing. Ah, if I could so live, that there should be no desultory moments. I would walk, I would sit and sleep with natural piety. What if I could pray aloud, or to myself, as I went along by the brookside, a cheerful prayer like the birds? For joy I could embrace the earth. I shall delight to be buried in it. And then, to think of those I love among men, who will know that I love them, though I tell them not. I thank you, God. I do not deserve anything. I am unworthy of the least regard, and yet the world is gilded for my delight, and holidays are prepared for me, and my path is strewn with flowers. Oh, keep my senses pure." Highly characteristic is that concluding ejaculation. For Thoreau, the five senses were not organs or means of sensuous gratification, but the five gateways of the soul. He would have them open and undefiled. Upon that point, no man was ever more insistent. Above all, no sense must be pampered, else it would lose its native freshness and delicacy, and so its diviner use. That way lay perdition. When a woman came to Concord to lecture, and Thoreau carried her manuscript to the hall for her, wrapped in its owner's handkerchief, he complained twenty-four hours afterward that his pocket still exhaled cologne. Faint, elusive outdoor odors were not only a continual delight to him, but a positive means of grace. So, too, 
he would rather not see any of the scenic wonders of the world, only let his sense of beauty remain uncorrupted, and he could trust his musketaquid meadows and the low hills round about to feed and satisfy him forever. Because of his jealousy in this regard, partly, and partly from ignorance it may be, just as some of his respectable village acquaintances would have found the Iliad, of which he talked so much, duller than death in comparison with the works of Mr. Sylvanus Cobb, he often spoke in slighting terms of operas and all the more elaborate forms of music. The ear, he thought, if it were kept innocent, would find satisfaction in the very simplest of musical sounds. For himself, there was no language extravagant enough to express his rapturous delight in them. Now all the romance of his youthfulest moment came flooding back upon him, and anon he was carried away till he looked under the lids of time all by the humming of telegraph wires, or at night especially by the distant baying of a hound. To the modern musical person, certain of his confessions under this head are of a character to excite mirth. He is much indebted, for instance, to a neighbor who will now and then, in the intervals of his work, draw forth a few strains from his accordion. The neighbor is only a learner, but, says Thoreau, I find when his strains cease that I have been elevated. His daily philosophy is all of a piece, one perceives. Plain fare, plain clothes, plain company, a hut in the woods, an old book, and for inspiration the notes of a neighbor's accordion. More than once, too, he acknowledges his obligation to that famous rural entertainer and civilizer, the hand organ. All Vienna could not do more for him, he ventures to think. It is perhaps the best instrumental music that we have, he observes, which can hardly have been true, even in Concord one prefers to believe, while admitting the possibility. If it is heard far enough away, he goes on, so that the creaking of the machinery is lost, it serves the grandest use for me. It deepens my existence. We smile, of course, as in duty bound, at so artless an avowal. But having smiled, we are bound also to render our opinion that the most blasé concert-goer, if he be a man of native sensibility, will readily enough discern what Thoreau has in mind, and with equal readiness will concede to it a measure of reasonableness. For he will have the witness in himself that the effect of music upon the soul depends as much upon the temper of the soul as upon the perfection of the instrument. One day a simple air, 
simply sung or played, will land him in heaven. And another day, the best efforts of the full symphony orchestra will leave him in the mire. And after all, it is possibly better, albeit in poorer taste, to be transported by the wheezing of an accordion than to be bored by finer music. As for Thoreau, he studied to be a master of the art of living, and in the practice of that art, as of any other, it is the glory of the artist to achieve extraordinary results by ordinary means. To have one's existence deepened, there cannot be many things more desirable than that and as between our unsophisticated recluse and the average musical person aforesaid, the case is perhaps not so one-sided as at first sight it looks, or, if it be, the odds are possibly not always on the side of what seems the greater opportunity. His life, the quality of his life, that for Thoreau, was the paramount concern. To the furthering of that end all things must be held subservient. Nature, man, books, music, all for him had the same use. This one thing he did, he cultivated himself. If any, because of his so doing, accused him of selfishness, preaching to him of philanthropy, almsgiving, and what not, his answer was already in his mouth. Mankind, he was prepared to maintain, was very well off without such helps, which, oftener than not, did as much harm as good. Though the concrete case at his elbow, half-clad Johnny Riordan, a fugitive slave, an Irishman who wished to bring his family over, appealed to him as quickly as to most one is glad to notice. And however that might be, the world needed a thousand times more than any so-called charity the sight of a man here and there living for higher ends than the world itself knows of. His own course, at any rate, was clear before him. What I am, I am, and say not. Being is the great explainer. His life, his own life, that he must live. And he must be in earnest about it. He was no indifferent, no little carer, no skeptic, as if truth and a lie were but varying shades of the same color, and virtue according to the old phrase, a mean between vices. You would never catch him sighing, oh well, or who knows. Qualifications, reconciliations, reproachments, the two sides of the shield and all that, these were considerations not in his line. Before everything else he was a believer an idealist, that is, the last person in the world to put up with half-truths or half-way measures. 
if existing things were thus and so that was no reason why with the sect of the sadducees he should make the best of them what if there were no best of them what if they were all bad and anyhow why not begin new it was conceivable was it not that a man should set his own example and follow his own copy general opinion what was that was a thing better established because ten thousand fools believed it did folly become wisdom by being raised to a higher power and antiquity tradition what were they could a blind man of fifteen centuries ago see farther than a blind man of the present time? And if the blind led the blind, then or now, would not both fall into the ditch? Yes, he was undoubtedly peculiar. As to that, there could never be anything but agreement among practical people. In a world where shiftiness and hesitation are the rule, nothing looks so eccentric as a straight course. It must be acknowledged, too, that a man whose goodness has a strong infusion of the bitter, and whose opinions turn out of the way for nobody, is not apt to be the most comfortable kind of neighbor. We were not greatly surprised lately, to hear an excellent lady remark of Thoreau that, from all she had read about him, she thought he must have been a very disagreeable gentleman. It could hardly be said of him, as Mr. Burrell says of Matthew Arnold, who was himself a pretty serious person, and after a way of his own a preacher of righteousness, that he conspired and contrived to make things pleasant. Being a consistent idealist, he was, of course, an extremist, falling in that respect little behind the man out of Nazareth, whose hard sayings by all accounts were sometimes less acceptable than they might have been, and of whom Thoreau asserted, in his emphatic way, that if his words were really read from any pulpit in the land, there would not be left one stone of that meeting-house upon another. Thoreau worshipped purity, and the everyday ethical standards of the street were to him an abomination. There are certain current expressions and blasphemous moods of viewing things, he declares, as when we say he is doing a good business, more profane than cursing and swearing. There is death and sin in such words. Let not the children hear them. That innocent-sounding phrase about a good business, as if a business might be taken for granted as good because it brought in money, was as abhorrent to him as the outrageous worldly philosophy of an old castaway like Major Pendennis is to the ordinarily sensitive reader. End of Introduction 
Part 2 Introduction Part 3 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 1837-1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction Part 3 He was constitutionally earnest. There are pages of the journal, indeed, which make one feel that perhaps he was in danger of being too much so for his own profit. Possibly it is not quite wholesome. Possibly, if one dares to say it, it begets a something like priggishness for the soul to be keyed up continually to so strenuous a pitch. In Thoreau's case, at all events, one is glad for every sign of a slackening of the tension. Set the red hen today. Got green grapes to stew. Painted the bottom of my boat. Trivialities like these, too far apart, one is tempted to colloquialize and call them precious few, finding them so infrequent and so welcome strike the reader with a sudden sensation of relief, as if he had been wading to the chin, and all at once his feet had touched a shallow. So, too, one is thankful to come upon a really amusing dissertation about the tying of shoestrings, or rather, about their too easy untying, a matter with which, it appears, Thoreau had for years experienced a great deal of trouble. His walking companion, Channing, presumably, and himself, had often compared notes about it, concluding, after experiments, that the duration of a shoe-tie might be made to serve as a reasonably accurate unit of measure, as accurate, say, as a stadium or a league. Channing, indeed, would sometimes go without shoestrings rather than be plagued so incessantly by their dissolute behavior. Finally, Thoreau, being then thirty-six years old, and always exceptionally clever with his hands, set his wits seriously at work upon knots, and by a stroke of good fortune, or a stroke of genius, hit upon one which answered his end, only to be told, on communicating his discovery to a third party, that he had all his life been tying granny knots, never having learned, at school or elsewhere, the secret of a square one. It might be well, he concludes, if all children were taught the accomplishment Verily, as Hosea Biglow did not say, they didn't know everything down in Concord. More refreshing still are entries describing hours of serene communion with nature, hours in which, as in an instance already cited, the Spirit of the Lord blessed him, and he forgot even to be good. These entries, likewise, are less numerous than could be wished, though perhaps as frequent as could fairly be expected, 
since ecstasies like feasts must in the nature of things be somewhat broadly spaced and it is interesting not to say surprising to see how frankly he looks upon them afterward as subjects on which to try his pen in these seasons when our genius reigns we may be powerless for expression he remarks but in calmer hours when talent is again active the memory of those rarer moods comes to color our picture and is the permanent paint-pot as it were into which we dip our brush but in truth the whole journal some volumes of which are carefully indexed in his own hand is quite undisguisedly a collection of thoughts feelings and observations out of which copy is to be extracted in it he says i wish to set down such choice experiences that my own writings may inspire me and at last i may make holes of parts each thought that is welcomed and recorded is a nest egg by the side of which more will be laid a born writer he is greedy of occasions to express himself he counts it wise to write on many subjects so that he may find the right and inspiring one there are innumerable avenues to a perception of the truth he tells himself improve the suggestion of each object however humble however slight and transient the provocation what else is there to be improved the literary diarist like the husbandman knows not which shall prosper morning and evening he can only sow the seed so it was with thoreau a strange and uncountable thing he pronounces his journal it will allow nothing to be predicated of it its good is not good nor its bad bad if i make a huge effort to expose my innermost and richest wares to light my counter seems cluttered with the meanest home-made stuffs but after months or years i may discover the wealth of india and whatever rarity is brought over land from cathay in that confused heap and what seemed a festoon of dried apple or pumpkin will prove a string of brazilian diamonds or pearls from coromandel well we make sure that whoever tumbles the heap over now more than forty years after the last object was laid upon it will be rewarded with many and many a jewel here for his encouragement are half a dozen out of the goodly number that one customer has lately turned up in a hasty rummaging of the counter when a dog runs at you whistle for him we must be at the helm at least once a day we must feel the tiller rope in our hands and know that if we sail we steer in composition i miss the hue of the mind 
after the era of youth is past the knowledge of ourselves is an alloy that spoils our satisfactions how vain it is to sit down to write when you have not stood up to live silence is of various depths and fertility like soil praise should be spoken as simply and naturally as a flower emits its fragrance here again is a mere nothing a momentary impression caught in ball-player's language on the fly nothing like a pearl from coromandel if you will but at the worst a toothsome bite out of a wild new england apple it is winter i saw a team come out of a path in the woods says thoreau as though it had never gone in but belonged there and only came out like elisha's bears there will be few country-bred yankee boys we imagine who will not remember to have experienced something precisely like that under precisely the same circumstances though it never occurred to them to put the feeling into words, much less to preserve it in a drop of ink. That is one of the good things that a writer does for us. And our country-bred boy, if we mistake not, is likely to consider this one careless sentence of Thoreau, which adds not a sense worth to the sum of what is called human knowledge, as of more value than any dozen pages of his painstaking botanical records. Thoreau, the naturalist, appears in the journal, not as a master, but as a learner. It could hardly be otherwise, of course, a journal being what it is. There we see him conning by himself his daily lesson, correcting yesterday by today, and to-day by to-morrow progressing like every scholar over the stepping-stones of his own mistakes of the branches he pursued as far as the present writer can presume to judge he was strongest in botany certainly it was to plants that he most persistently devoted himself but even there he had as many uncertainties as discoveries to set down, and he set them down with unflagging zeal and unrestrained particularity. The daily account is running over with question marks. His patience was admirable, the more so as he worked entirely by himself with few of the helps that in this better furnished time almost belie the old proverb and make even the beginner's path a kind of royal road to learning the day of how to know handbooks had not yet dawned of his bird studies it would be interesting if there were room to speak at greater length here even more than in botany if that were possible he suffered for lack of assistance and even in his later entries leaves the present-day reader wondering how so eager a scholar could have spent so many years in learning so comparatively little the mystery is partly cleared however 
when it is found that until 1854, say for more than a dozen years, he studied without a glass. He does not buy things, he explains, with characteristic self-satisfaction, till long after he begins to want them, so that when he does get them he is prepared to make a perfect use of them. It was wasteful economy. He might as well have botanized without a pocket lens. But glass or no glass, how could an ornithological observer whose power, so Emerson said, seemed to indicate additional senses, be in the field daily for ten or fifteen years before setting eyes upon his first rose-breasted grosbeak, which memorable event happened to Thoreau on the 13th of June, 1853. How could a man who had made it his business for at least a dozen years to name all the birds without a gun stand for a long time within a few feet of a large bird, so busy that it could not be scared far away, and then go home uncertain whether he had been looking at a woodcock or a snipe. How could he, when thirty-five years old, see a flock of sparrows and hear them sing, and not be sure whether or not they were chipping sparrows? And how could a man so strong in times and seasons always marking dates with an almanac's exactness, how could he, so late as fifty-two, inquire concerning the downy woodpecker, one of the more familiar and constant of year-round birds, do we see him in the winter? And again, a year later, be found to asking whether he, the same downy woodpecker, is not the first of our woodland birds to arrive in the spring. At thirty-six he is amazed to the extent of double exclamation points by the sight of a flicker so early as March twenty-ninth. It fills one with astonishment to hear him, May 4, 1853, describing what he takes to be an indigo bird after this fashion dark throat and light beneath, and white spot on wings, with hoarse rapid notes, a kind of twee-twee-twee, not musical. The stranger may have been, most likely it was, a black-throated blue warbler, which is as much like an indigo bird as a bluebird is like a blue jay, or a yellow apple like an orange and the indigo bird, it should be said, is a common New Englander, such as one of our modern schoolboy bird-gazers would have no difficulty in getting into his list any summer day in Concord. While the warbler in question, though nothing but a migrant, and somewhat seclusive in its habits, is so regular in its passage and so unmistakably marked, no bird more so, that it seems marvellous how Thoreau, prowling about everywhere with his eyes open, should year after year have missed it. 
the truth appears to be that even of the commoner sorts of birds that breed in eastern massachusetts or migrate through it thoreau during the greater part of his life at least knew by sight and name only a small proportion wonderful as his knowledge seemed to those who like emerson knew practically nothing not that the journal is likely to prove less interesting to bird-loving readers on this account. On the contrary, it may rather be more so, as showing them the means and methods of an ornithological amateur fifty years ago, and especially as providing for them a desirable store of ornithological nuts to crack on winter evenings some such reader by a careful collation of the data which the publication of the journal as a whole puts at his disposal will perhaps succeed in settling the identity of the famous night warbler a bird which some we believe have suspected to be nothing rarer than the almost superabundant oven bird but which so far as we ourselves know, may have been almost any one, or any two or three, of our smaller common birds that are given to occasional ecstatic song flights. Whatever it was, it was of use to Thoreau for the quickening of his imagination, and for literary purposes, and Emerson was well advised in warning him to beware of booking it lest life henceforth should have so much the less to show him. It must be said, however, that Thoreau stood in slight need of such a caution. He cherished for himself a pretty favorable opinion of a certain kind and measure of ignorance. With regard to some of his ornithological mysteries, for example, the night warbler, the syringo bird, with which something like certainty we may conjecture to have been the savannah sparrow, and others, he flatters himself that his good genius had withheld their names from him that he might the better learn their character, whatever such an expression may be supposed to mean. He maintained stoutly, from beginning to end, that he was not of the ordinary school of naturalists, but a mystic a transcendentalist and a natural philosopher in one though he believed himself in his own words by constitution as good an observer as most he will not be one of those who seek facts as facts studying nature as a dead language he studies her for purposes of his own in search of the raw material of tropes and figures. I pray for such experience as will make nature significant, he declares, and then, with the same penful of ink, he asks, Is that the swamp gooseberry of gray, now just beginning to blossom at Sawmill Brook? It has a divided style, and stamens, etc., as yet not longer than the calyx, though my slip has no thorns nor prickles, and so on and so on. 
pages on pages of the journal are choke full literally of this kind of botanical interrogation till the unsympathetic reader will be in danger of surmising that the mystical searcher after tropes and symbols is sometimes not so utterly unlike the student of the dead language of fact but then it is one of the virtues of a journal that it is not a work of art that it has no form no fashion and so does not go out of fashion and is always at liberty to contradict itself as thoreau said he tumbled his goods upon the counter no single customer is bound to be pleased with them all different men different tastes let each select from the pile the things that suit his fancy for our own part we acknowledge and the shrewd reader may already have remarked the fact we have not been disinclined to choose here and there a bit of some less rare and costly stuff the man is so sternly virtuous so inexorably in earnest so heart set upon perfection that we almost like him best when for a moment he betrays something that suggests a touch of human frailty we prick up our ears when he speaks of a woman he once in a while goes to see who tells him to his face that she thinks him self-conceited now then we whisper to ourselves how will this man who despises flattery and boasting himself a commoner professes that for him there is something devilish in manners how will this candor-loving truth-speaking truth-appreciating man enjoy the rebuke of so unmannered a mentor and we smile and say aha when he adds that the lady wonders why he does not visit her oftener we smile too when he brags in early february that he has not yet put on his winter clothing amusing himself the while over the muffs and furs of his less hardy neighbors his own simple diet making him so tough in the fibre that he flourishes like a tree and then a week later writes with unbroken equanimity that he is down with bronchitis, contenting himself to spend his days cuddled in a warm corner by the stove. Trifles of this kind encourage a pleasant feeling of brotherly relationship. He is one of us, after all, with like passions. But, of course, we really like him best when he is at his best, as in some outpouring of his love for things natural and wild. Let us have one more such quotation. Now I yearn for one of those old, meandering, dry, uninhabited roads which lead away from towns, which lead us away from temptation, which conduct us to the outside of earth over its uppermost crust, where you may forget in what country you are travelling, where your head is more in heaven than your feet are on earth, 
where you can pace when your breast is full and cherish your moodiness. There I can walk and recover the lost child that I am without any ringing of a bell. For real warmth, when once the fire burns, who can exceed our stoic? We like also his bits of prettiness, things in which he is second to nobody, though prettiness again is not supposed to be the stoic's note, and they are all the prettier, as well as ten times more welcome, because he has the grace and the sound literary sense to drop them here and there, as it were casually, upon a ground of simple, unaffected prose. Here now is a sentence that by itself is worth a deal of ornithology. The song sparrow is heard in fields and pastures, setting the midsummer day to music as if it were the music of a mossy rail or fence-post. Of dragonflies, he says, how lavishly they are painted! How cheap was the paint! How free was the fancy of their creator! In early June, when woods are putting forth leaves, the summer is pitching its tent. He finds the dainty fringed polygola, whose ordinary color is a lovely rose purple, sporting white blossoms, and remarks, Thus many flowers have their nun sisters dressed in white. Soaring hawks are kites without strings, and when he and his companion are traveling across country, keeping out the sight of houses, yet compelled to traverse here and there a farmer's field, they shut every window with an apple tree. Gems like these one need not be a connoisseur to appreciate, and they are common upon his counter. It was a good name that Channing gave him, the poet-naturalist. But there are better things than flowers and jewels to be found in Thoreau's stock. There are cordials and tonics there, to brace a man when he is weary, eye-washes to cleanse his vision till he sees the heights above him and repents the lowness of his aims and the vulgarity of his satisfactions, blisters and irritant plasters in large variety and of warranted strength, but little or nothing so far as the present customer has noticed in the line of anodynes and sleeping powders. There we may buy moral wisdom, which is not only the foundation and source of good writing, as one of the ancients said, but of the arts in general, especially the art of life. If the world is too much with us, if wealth attracts and the rust of copper has begun to eat into the soul, if we are in danger of selling our years for things that perish with the using, here we may find correctives and go away thankful, rejoicing henceforth to be rich in a better coinage than any that bears the world's stamp. The very exaggerations of the master, if we call them such, may do us good like a medicine, 
for there are diseased conditions which yield to nothing so quickly as to a shock. As for Thoreau himself, life might have been smoother for him had he been less exacting in his idealism, more tolerant of imperfection in others and in himself. Had he taken his studies and even his spiritual aspirations a grain or two less seriously. A bit of boyish play now and then, the bow quite unbent, or a dose of novel-reading of the love-making, humanizing, trilopian sort, could one imagine it with a more temperate cherishing of his moodiness, might have done him no harm. It would have been for his comfort so much may confidently be said, whether for his happiness is another question, had he been one of those gentler humorists who can sometimes see themselves, as all humorists have the gift of seeing other people, funny side out. But then, had these things been so, had his natural scope been wider, his genius, so to say, more tropical, richer, freer, more expansive, more various and flexible, more like the spreading banyan and less like the soaring, sky-pointing spruce, why then he would no longer have been Thoreau. For better or worse, his speech would have lost its distinctive tang, and in the long run the world, which likes a touch of bitter and a touch of sour, would almost certainly have found the man himself less interesting, and his books less rememberable, and made as he was born to his own affairs, what else could he do but stick to himself? We are constantly invited to be what we are, he said. The words might fittingly have been cut upon his gravestone. B. T. End of Introduction Chapter 1, Part 1 of The Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 1837-1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1, 1837, at the age of twenty, part one. October 22nd. What are you doing now? he asked. Do you keep a journal? So I make my first entry today. Solitude. To be alone, I find it necessary to escape the present. I avoid myself. How could I be alone in the Roman Emperor's Chamber of Mirrors? I seek a garret. The spiders must not be disturbed, nor the floor swept, nor the lumber arranged. The Germans say, Es ist alles war verduch du besser wirst. The mold our deeds leave. October 24th. Every part of nature teaches that the passing away of one life 
is the making room for another. The oak dies down to the ground, leaving within its rind a rich virgin mold which will impart a vigorous life to an infant forest. The pine leaves a sandy and sterile soil, the harder woods a strong and fruitful mold. So this constant abrasion and decay makes the soil of my future growth. As I live now, so shall I reap. If I grow pines and birches, my virgin mold will not sustain the oak. But pines and birches, or perchance weeds and brambles, will constitute my second growth. Spring, October 25th. She appears, and we are once more children. We commence again our course with the new year. Let the maiden no more return, and men will become poets for very grief. No sooner has winter left us time to regret her smiles than we yield to the advances of poetic frenzy. Quote, the flowers look kindly at us from the beds with their child eyes, and in the horizon the snow of the far mountains dissolves into light vapor. Goethe, Turcato Tasso. The poet. Quote, he seems to avoid, even to flee from us to seek something which we know not, and perhaps he himself, after all, knows not. Quote, Ibid. October 26th. His eye hardly rests upon the earth. His ear hears the one clang of nature. What history records, what life gives, Directly and gladly his genius takes it up. His mind collects the widely dispersed, and his feeling animates the inanimate. Often he ennobles what appeared to us common, and the prized is as nothing to him. In his own magic circle wanders the wonderful man, and draws us with him to wander and take part in it. He seems to draw near to us and remains afar from us. He seems to be looking at us, and spirits, forsooth, appear to him strangely in our places. End quote. Ibid. How Man Grows quote, a noble man has not to thank a private circle for his culture. Fatherland and world must work upon him. Fame and infamy must he learn to endure. He will be constrained to know himself and others. Solitude shall no more lull him with her flattery. The foe will not... The friend dares not spare him. Then, striving, the youth puts forth his strength, feels what he is, and feels himself soon a man. 
End quote. Quote, a talent is builded in solitude, a character in the stream of the world. End quote. Quote, he only fears man who knows him not, and he who avoids him will soonest misapprehend him. End quote. Ibid. Ariasto. Quote, As nature decks her inward rich breast in a green variegated dress, so clothes he all that can make men honorable in the blooming garb of the fable. The well of superfluity bubbles near and lets us see variegated wonder fishes. The air is filled with rare birds, the meads and copses with strange herds, wit lurks half concealed in the verdure, and wisdom from time to time lets sound from a golden cloud sustained words, while frenzy wildly seems to sweep the well-toned lute, yet holds itself measured in perfect time. End quote. Beauty. Quote, that beauty is transitory, which alone you seem to honor. Goethe, Torcato Tasso. The Fog. October 27th. The prospect is limited to Knobscott and a snack. The trees stand with boughs downcast like pilgrims beaten by a storm, and the whole landscape wears a somber aspect. So when thick vapors cloud the soul, it strives in vain to escape from its humble working-day valley and pierce the dense fog which shuts out from view the blue peaks in its horizon but must be content to scan its near and homely hills. Ducks at Goose Pond, October 29th. Two ducks, of the summer or wood species, which were merrily dabbling in their favorite basin, struck up a retreat on my approach, and seemed disposed to take French leave, paddling off with swan-like majesty. They are first-rate swimmers, beating me at a round pace, and what was to me a new trait in the duck character, dove every minute or two and swam several feet under water in order to escape our attention. Just before immersion, they seemed to give each other a significant nod, and then, as if by a common understanding, twas heels up and head down in the shaking of a duck's wing. When they reappeared, it was amusing to observe with what a self-satisfied, darn-it-how-he-nicks-em air they paddled off to repeat the experiment. The Arrowhead A curious incident happened some four to six weeks ago, which I think it worth the while to record. 
John and I had been searching for Indian relics, and been successful enough to find two arrowheads and a pestle, when, of a Sunday evening, with our heads full of the past and its remains, we strolled to the mouth of Swamp Bridge Brook. As we neared the brow of the hill, forming the bank of the river, inspired by my theme, I broke forth into an extravagant eulogy on those savage times, using most violent gesticulations by way of illustration. There on Nauchatuck, said I, was their lodge, the rendezvous of the tribe, and yonder, on Clamshell Hill, their feasting ground. This was, no doubt, a favorite haunt. Here, on this brow, was an eligible lookout post. How often have they stood on this very spot, at this very hour, when the sun was sinking behind yonder woods and gilding with its last rays the waters of the musketaquid, and pondered the day's success and the morrow's prospects, or communed with the spirit of their fathers gone before them to the land of shades. Here, I exclaimed, stood Tahatawan, and there, to complete the period, is Tawatahan's arrowhead. We instantly proceeded to sit down on the spot I had pointed to, and I, to carry out the joke, to lay bare an ordinary stone which my whim had selected, when, lo, the first I laid hands on, the grubbing stone that was to be, proved a most perfect arrowhead, as sharp as if just from the hands of the Indian fabricator. Sunrise, October 30th. First we have the gray twilight of the poets, with dark and barry clouds diverging to the zenith. Then glows the intruding cloud in the east, as if it bore a precious jewel in its bosom. A deep round gulf of golden gray indenting its upper edge, while slender rules of fleecy vapor, radiating from the common center like light-armed troops, fall regularly into their places. Sailing with and against the stream, November 3rd. If one would reflect, let him embark on some placid stream and float with the current. He cannot resist the muse. As we ascend the stream, plying the paddle with might and main, snatched and impetuous thoughts course through the brain. We dream of conflict, power, and grandeur. But turn the prow downstream, and rock, tree, kine, knoll, assuming new and varying positions as water and wind shift the scene, favor the liquid lapse of thought, far-reaching and sublime, but ever calm and gently undulating. Truth, 
November 5th. Truth strikes us from behind, and in the dark, as well as from before, and in broad daylight. Still streams run deepest. November 9th. It is the rill whose silver sands and pebbles sing eternal ditties with the spring. The early frosts bridge its narrow channel, and its querulous note is hushed. Only the flickering sunlight on its sandy bottom attracts the beholder. But there are souls whose depths are never fathomed, on whose bottom the sun never shines. We get a distant view from the precipitous banks, but never a draught from their mid-channels. Only a sunken rock or fallen oak can provoke a murmur, and their surface is a stranger to the icy fetters which bind fast a thousand contributory rills. Discipline, November 12th. I yet lack discernment to distinguish the whole lesson of today, but it is not lost. It will come to me at last. My desire is to know what I have lived, that I may know how to live henceforth. Sin destroys the perception of the beautiful. November 13th. This shall be the test of innocence. If I can hear a taunt and look out on this friendly moon, pacing the heavens in queen-like majesty with the accustomed yearning. Truth. Truth is ever returning into herself. I glimpse one feature today, another tomorrow, and the next day they are blended. Goethe, November 15th, quote, And now that it is evening, a few clouds in the mild atmosphere rest upon the mountains. More stand still than move in the heavens, and immediately after sunset the chirping of crickets begins to increase. Then feels one once more at home in the world, and not as an alien, an exile. I am contented as though I had been born and brought up here, and now returned from a Greenland or whaling voyage. Even the dust of my fatherland, as it is whirled about the wagon, which for so long a time I had not seen, is welcome. The clock and bell jingling of the crickets is very agreeable, penetrating, and not without a meaning. Pleasant is it when roguish boys whistle in emulation of a field of such songstresses. One imagines that they really enhance each other. The evening is perfectly mild as the day. Should an inhabitant of the South, coming from the South, hear of my rapture, he would deem me very childish. Alas, what I here express have I long felt under an unpropitious heaven. 
and now this joy is to me an exception which i am henceforth to enjoy a necessity of my nature italianisha Hrysa. sunrise november seventeenth now the king of day plays at bo-peep round the world's corner and every cottage window smiles a golden smile a very picture of glee i see the water glistening in the eye the smooth red breathings of awakening day strike the ear with an undulating motion over hill and dale pasture and woodland come they to me and i am at home in the world the sky if there is nothing new on earth still there is something new in the heavens we have always a resource in the skies they are constantly turning a new page to view the wind sets the types in this blue ground and the inquiring may always read a new truth. Virgil, November 18th, quote, Pulse referunt ad sidera valles, end quote, is such a line as would save an epic. And how finely he concludes his, quote, agrestum musum, end quote, now that Selinus has done, and the stars have heard his story. Quote, Cogere donec ovest stabulis, numerum que rifere, jucit, et in vito processit vesper olimpo. Harmony. Nature makes no noise. A howling storm, the rustling leaf, the pattering rain are no disturbance. There is an essential and unexplored harmony in them. Why is it that thought flows with so deep and sparkling a current when the sound of distant music strikes the ear? When I would muse, I complain not of a rattling tune on the piano, a battle of Prague even, if it be harmony, but an irregular, discordant drumming is intolerable. Shadows When a shadow flits across the landscape of the soul, where is the substance? Has it always its origin in sin? And is that sin in me? Virgil November 20th. I would read Virgil, if only that I might be reminded of the identity of human nature in all ages. I take satisfaction in, quote, Jamleto tergent in palmite gemei, or, quote, Strata jazent passim sua quaeque sub abore poma. It was the same world, and the same men inhabited it. 
Neuchatelt, November 21st. One must needs climb a hill to know what a world he inhabits. In the midst of this Indian summer, I am perched on the topmost rock of Neuchatelt, a velvet wind blowing from the southwest. I seem to feel the atoms as they strike my cheek. Hills, mountains, steeples stand out in bold relief in the horizon, while I am resting on the rounded boss of an enormous shield, the river like a vein of silver encircling its edge, and thence the shield gradually rises to its rim, the horizon. Not a cloud is to be seen, but villages, villas, forests, mountains, one above another, till they are swallowed up in the heavens. The atmosphere is such that, as I look abroad upon the length and breadth of the land, it recedes from my eye, and I seem to be looking for the threads of the velvet. Thus I admire the grandeur of my emerald carriage, with its border of blue, in which I am rolling through space. Thoughts November 26th I look around for thoughts when I am overflowing myself. While I live on, thought is still in embryo. It stirs not within me. Anon it begins to assume shape and comeliness, and I deliver it and clothe it in its garment of language. But alas, how often when thoughts choke me do I resort to a spat on the back, or swallow a crust, or do anything but expectorate them. End of chapter 1 Part 1Chapter 1. 1837, at the age of twenty, part two, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume one, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1, part two. Hoarfrost and Green River. November 28th. Every tree, fence, and spire of grass that could raise its head above the snow was this morning covered with a dense hoar frost. The trees looked like airy creatures of darkness caught napping. On this side, they were huddled together, their gray hairs streaming in a secluded valley which the sun had not yet penetrated, and on that they went hurrying off in Indian file by hedgerows and watercourses, while the shrubs and grasses, like elves and fairies of the night, sought to hide their diminished heads in the snow. The branches and taller grasses were covered with a wonderful ice foliage, answering leaf for leaf to their summer dress. The center, diverging, 
and even more minute fibers were perfectly distinct and the edges regularly indented these leaves were on the side of the twig or stubble opposite to the sun when it was not bent toward the east meeting it for the most part at right angles and there were others standing out at all possible angles upon these and upon one another it struck me that these ghost leaves and the green ones whose forms they assume were the creatures of the same law it could not be in obedience to two several laws that the vegetable juices swelled gradually into the perfect leaf on the one hand and the crystalline particles trooped to their standard in the same admirable order on the other the river viewed from the bank above appeared of a yellowish-green color but on a nearer approach this phenomenon vanished and yet the landscape was covered with snow ice harp december fifth my friend tells me he has discovered a new note in nature which he calls the ice harp chancing to throw a handful of pebbles upon the pond where there was an air chamber under the ice it discoursed a pleasant music to him herein resides a tenth muse and as he was the man to discover it probably the extra melody is in him goethe december eighth he is generally satisfied with giving an exact description of objects as they appear to him and his genius is exhibited in the points he seizes upon and illustrates his description of venice and her environs as seen from the marcustherm is that of an unconcerned spectator whose object is faithfully to describe what he sees and that too for the most part in the order in which he saw it it is this trait which is chiefly to be prized in the book even the reflections of the author do not interfere with his descriptions it would thus be possible for inferior minds to produce invaluable books measure december tenth not the carpenter alone carries his rule in his pocket space is quite subdued to us the meanest peasant finds in a hair of his head or the white crescent upon his nail the unit of measure for the distance of the fixed stars his middle finger measures how many digits into space he extends a few times his thumb and finger and the continent is spanned he stretches out his arms and the sea is fathomed thought december twelfth there are times when thought elbows her way through the underwood of words to the clear blue beyond or bog or steep through straight rough dense or rare with head hands wings or feet pursues her way and swims or sinks 
or wades or creeps or flies but let her don her cumbersome working-day garment and each sparkling dewdrop will seem a slough of despond peculiarity when we speak of a peculiarity in a man or a nation we think to describe only one part a mere mathematical point but it is not so it pervades all some parts may be further removed than others from this centre but not a particle so remote as not to be either shined on or shaded by it thorns no faculty in man was created with a useless or sinister intent in no respect can he be wholly bad but the worst passions have their root in the best as anger for instance may be only a perverted sense of wrong which yet retains some traces of its origin so a spine is proved to be only an abortive branch which notwithstanding even as a spine bears leaves and in euphorbia heptagona sometimes flowers and fruit jack frost december fifteenth as further confirmation of the fact that vegetation is a kind of crystallization i observe that upon the edge of the melting frost on the windows jack is playing singular freaks now bundling together his needle-shaped leaves so as to resemble fields waving with grain or shocks of wheat rising here and there from the stubble on one side the vegetation of the torrid zone is presented you high towering palms and wide-spread banyans such as we see in pictures of oriental scenery on the other are arctic pines stiff frozen with branches downcast like the arms of tender men in frosty weather in some instances the panes are covered with little feathery flocks where the particles radiate from a common centre the number of radii varying from three to seven or eight the crystalline particles are partial to the creases and flaws in the glass, and when these extend from sash to sash, form complete hedgerows or miniature watercourses where dense masses of crystal foliage high overarched embower. Frozen Mist, December 16th the woods were this morning covered with thin bars of vapor the evaporation of the leaves according to sprengel which seemed to have been suddenly stiffened by the cold in some places it was spread out like gauze over the tops of the trees forming extended lawns where elves and fairies held high tournament before each van prick forth the airy knights and couch their spears 
till thickest legions close. The east was glowing with a narrow but ill-defined crescent of light, the blue of the zenith mingling in all possible proportions with the salmon color of the horizon. And now the neighboring hilltops telegraphed to us poor crawlers of the plain the monarch's golden ensign in the east, and anon his long-leveled rules fall sector-wise, and humblest cottage windows greet their lord. Facts How indispensable to a correct study of nature is a perception of her true meaning. The fact will one day flower out into a truth. The season will mature and fructify what the understanding had cultivated. Mere accumulators of facts, collectors of materials for the master workmen, are like those plants growing in dark forests which put forth only leaves instead of blossoms. Druids, December 17th in all ages and nations we observe a leaning towards a right state of things this may especially be seen in the history of the priest whose life approaches most nearly to that of the ideal man the druids pay no taxes and were allowed exemption from warfare and all other things the clergy are even now a privileged class. In the last stage of civilization, poetry, religion, and philosophy will be one, and this truth is glimpsed in the first. The druidical order was divided into druids, bards, and oets. The bards were the poets and musicians of whom some were satirists and some encomiasts. The Oets sacrificed, divined, and contemplated the nature of things. The Druids cultivated physiology and moral philosophy, or, as Diodorus says, were their philosophers and theologians. Goethe December 18th he required that his heroine, Ephigenia, should say nothing which might not be uttered by the holy Agathe, whose picture he contemplated. Immortality Post The nations assert an immortality post as well as ante. The Athenians wore a golden grasshopper as an emblem that they sprang from the earth, and the Arcadians pretended that they were proselini, or before the moon. The Platos do not seem to have considered this back-reaching tendency of the human mind. The Pride of Ancestry Men are pleased to be called the sons of their fathers, so little truth suffices them, and whoever addresses them by this or a similar title is termed a poet. 
the orator appeals to the sons of greece of britannia of france or of poland and our father's homely name acquires some interest from the fact that sakai suna means sons of the sakai hell december nineteenth hell itself may be contained within the compass of a spark saxons the fact seems at first an anomalous one that the less a people have to contend for the more tenacious they are of their rights the saxons of ditmarcia contended for a principle not for their sterile sands and uncultivated marshes we are on the whole the same saxons that our fathers were when it was said of them quote, they are emulous in hospitality because to plunder and to lavish is the glory of a holsation not to be versed in the science of depredation is in his opinion to be stupid and base the french are the same franks of whom it is written francis familiare est ridendo fidem frangere gens francorum infideles est si pergere francus quid nove faciet qui perjuriam ipsam sermonis genis putat esse non criminis crystals i observed this morning that the ice at swamp bridge was checkered with a kind of mosaic work of white creases or channels and when i examined the underside i found it to be covered with a mass of crystallizations from three to five inches deep standing or rather depending at right angles to the true ice which was about an eighth of an inch thick there was a yet older ice six or eight inches below this the crystals were for the most part triangular prisms with their lower end open though in some cases they had run into each other so as to form four or five sided prisms when the ice was laid upon its smooth side they resembled the roofs and steeples of a gothic city or the vessels of a crowded haven under the press of canvas I noticed also that where the ice in the road had melted and left the mud bare, the latter, as if crystallized, discovered countless rectilinear fissures, an inch or more in length, a continuation, as it were, of the checkered ice. December 22nd About a year ago, having set aside a bowl which had contained some rhubarb grated in water without wiping it i was astonished to find a few days afterward that the rhubarb had crystallized covering the bottom of the bowl with perfect cubes 
the color and consistency of glue and a tenth of an inch in diameter. Crystals December 23rd Crossed the river today on the ice. Though the weather is raw and wintry and the ground covered with snow, I noticed a solitary robin who looked as if he needed to have his services to the babes in the woods speedily requited. In the side of the high bank by the leaning hemlocks there were some curious crystallizations. Wherever the water or other causes had formed a hole in the bank, its throat and outer edge like the entrance to a citadel of the olden time, bristled with a glistening ice armor. In one place you might see minute ostrich feathers, which seemed the waving plumes of the warriors filing into the fortress. In another, the glancing fan-shaped banners of the Lilliputian host, and in another, the needle-shaped particles, collected into bundles resembling the plumes of the pine, might pass for a phalanx of spears. The whole hill was like an immense quartz rock, with minute crystals sparkling from innumerable crannies. I tried to fancy that there was a disposition in these crystallizations to take the forms of the contiguous foliage. Revolutions. December 27th. Revolutions are never sudden. Not one man, nor many men, in a few years or generations, suffice to regulate events and dispose mankind for the revolutionary movement. The hero is but the crowning stone of the pyramid, the keystone of the arch. Who was Romulus or Remus, Hengist or Horsa, that we should attribute to them Rome or England? They are famous or infamous because the progress of events has chosen to make them its stepping-stones. But we would know where the avalanche commenced or the hollow in the rock whence springs the Amazon. The most important is apt to be some silent and unobtrusive fact in history. In 449, three Saxon sails arrived on the British coast. Quote, three sipen goed comen mid then flowed, three hundred snitten. The pirate of the British coast was no more the founder of a state than the scourge of the German shore. Heroes The real heroes of minstrelsy have been ideal, even when the names of actual heroes have been perpetuated. The real Arthur, who not only excelled the experienced past, but also the possible future, of whom it was affirmed for many centuries that he was not dead, but had withdrawn from the world into some magical region, 
from which at a future crisis he was to reappear and lead the Simri in triumph through the island, whose character and actions were the theme of the bards of Britannia, and the foundations of their interminable romances was only an ideal impersonation. Men claim for the ideal an actual existence also, but do not often expand the actual into the ideal. If you do not believe me, go into Britannia and mention in the streets or villages that Arthur is really dead like other men. You will not escape with impunity. You will be either hooted with the curses of your hearers or stoned to death. Homesickness the most remarkable instance of homesickness is that of the colony of Franks, transplanted by the Romans from the German Ocean to the Euxine, who at length, resolving to a man to abandon the country, seized the vessels which carried them out, and reached at last their native shores, after innumerable difficulties and dangers upon the Mediterranean and Atlantic. The Interesting Facts in History How cheering is it, after toiling through the darker pages of history, the heartless and fluctuating crust of human rest and unrest, to alight on the solid earth where the sun shines, or rest in the checkered shade. The fact that Edwin of Northumbria caused stakes to be fixed in the highways where he had seen a clear spring, and that brazen dishes were chained to them to refresh the weary sojourner whose fatigues Edwin had himself experienced is worth all Arthur's twelve battles. The sun again shines along the highway. The landscape presents us sunny glades and occasional cultivated patches, as well as dark primeval forests, and it is merry England, after all. December 31st As the least drop of wine tinges the whole goblet, so the least particle of truth colors our whole life. It is never isolated, or simply added as treasure to our stock. When any real progress is made, we unlearn and learn anew what we thought we knew before. We go picking up from year to year, and laying side by side the disjecta membra of truth as he who picked up one by one a row of a hundred stones and returned with each separately to his basket. End of chapter 1「The Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 
1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 1 Heaven on Earth, January 6th As a child looks forward to the coming of the summer, so could we contemplate with quiet joy the circle of the seasons returning without fail eternally. As the spring came round during so many years of the gods, we could go out to admire and adorn anew our Eden and yet never tire. Saxons, January 15th after all that has been said in praise of the saxon race we must allow that our blue-eyed and fair-haired ancestors were originally an ungodly and reckless crew we make our own fortune january sixteenth man is like a cork which no tempest can sink but it will float securely to its haven at last. The world is nevertheless beautiful, though viewed through a chink or knothole. January 21st Man is the artificer of his own happiness. Let him beware how he complains of the disposition of circumstances, for it is his own disposition he blames. If this is sour, or that rough, or the other steep, let him think if it be not his work. If his look curdles all hearts, let him not complain of a sour reception. If he hobble in his gait, let him not grumble at the roughness of the way. If he is weak in the knees, let him not call the hill steep. This was the pith of the inscription on the wall of the Swedish inn. Quote, you will find at Trollet excellent bread, meat, and wine, provided you bring them with you. Hoarfrost. Every leaf and twig was this morning covered with a sparkling ice armor. Even the grasses in exposed fields were hung with innumerable diamond pendants, which jingled merrily when brushed by the foot of the traveler. It was literally the wreck of jewels and the crash of gems. It was as though some superincumbent stratum of the earth had been removed in the night, exposing to light a bed of untarnished crystals. The scene changed at every step, or as the head was inclined to the right or the left. There were the opal and sapphire, and emerald and jasper, and beryl and topaz, and ruby. Such is beauty ever, neither here nor there, nor now then, neither in Rome nor in Athens, but wherever there is a soul to admire. If I seek her elsewhere because I do not find her at home, my search will be a fruitless one. Zeno, February 7th. 
Zeno, the Stoic, stood in precisely the same relation to the world that I do now. He is, forsooth, bred a merchant, as how many still, and can trade and barter, and perchance higgle, and moreover he can be shipwrecked and cast ashore at the Piraeus, like one of your Johns or Thomases. He strolls into his shop, and is charmed by a book by Xenophon, and straightway he becomes a philosopher. The sun of a new life's day rises to him, serene and unclouded, which looks over Stoa, and still the fleshly Zeno sails on, shipwrecked, buffeted, tempest-tossed, but the true Zeno sails ever a placid sea. Play high, play low, rain, sleet, or snow, it's all the same with the Stoic. Propriety and decorum were his palinurus, not the base progeny of fashion, but the suggestions of an experienced taste. When evening comes, he sits down, unwearied, to the review of his day. What's done, that's to be undone. What not done at all, still to be done. Himself truth's unconcerned helpmate. Another system of bookkeeping, this then the Cyprian trader to Phoenicia practiced. This was he who said to a certain garrulous young man, quote, On this account we have two ears and but one mouth, that we may hear more and speak less. End quote. That he had talked concerned not our philosopher, but his audience, and herein we may see how it is more noble to hear than to speak. The wisest may apologize that he only said so to hear himself talk, for if he heard not, as well for him had he never spoken. What is all this gabble to the gabbler? Only the silent reap the profit of it. Society, February 9th. It is wholesome advice to be a man amongst folks. Go into society, if you will, or, if you are unwilling, and take a human interest in its affairs. If you mistake these messieurs and mesdames for so many men and women, it is but erring on the safe side, or rather it is their error and not yours. Armed with a manly sincerity, you shall not be trifled with, but drive this business of life. It matters not how many men are to be addressed, rebuked, provided one man rebuke them. Small Talk To manage the small talk of a party is to make an effort to do what was at first done, admirably, because naturally, at your fireside. Influence 
February 13th. It is hard to subject ourselves to an influence. It must steal upon us when we expect it not, and its work be all done ere we are aware of it. If we make advances, it is shy. If, when we feel its presence, we presume to pry into its Freemasonry, it vanishes and leaves us alone in our folly. Brimful but stagnant, a full channel it may be, but no inclination. Fear all fear of the world or consequences is swallowed up in a manly anxiety to do truth justice. Old Books, February 15th. The true student will cleave ever to the good, recognizing no past, no present, but wherever he emerges from the bosom of time, his course is not with the sun, eastward or westward, but ever towards the seashore. Day and night pursues he his devious way, lingering by how many a Pyrian spring, and how many an Academus grove, how many a sculptured portico, all which spring grove and portico lie not so wide but he may take them conveniently in his way greece february sixteenth in imagination i hie me to greece as to enchanted ground no storms vex her coasts no clouds encircle her helicon or olympus no tempests sweep the peaceful tempe or ruffle the bosom of the placid aegean but always the beams of the summer's sun gleam along the entablature of the acropolis or are reflected through the mellow atmosphere from a thousand consecrated groves and fountains always her sea-girt isles are dallying with their zephyr guests and the low of kine is heard along the meads and the landscape sleeps valley and hill and woodland a dreamy sleep each of her sons created a new heaven and a new earth for greece sunday february eighteenth rightly named sun-a-day or day of the sun one is satisfied in some angle by woodhouse and garden fence to bask in his beams to exist barely the live-long day spring i had not been out long to-day when it seemed that a new spring was already born not quite weaned it is true but verily entered upon existence nature struck up the same old song in the grass despite eighteen inches of snow and i contrived to smuggle away a grin of satisfaction by a smothered pshaw and is that all february nineteenth 
each summer sound is a summer round. Goethe, February 27th. He jogs along at a snail's pace, but ever mindful that the earth is beneath and the heavens above him. His Italy is not merely the fatherland of Lazzaroni and Maccaroni, but a solid turf-clad soil, daily illumined by a genial sun and nightly gleaming in the still moonshine, to say nothing of the frequent showers which are so faithfully recorded. That sail to Palermo was literally a ploughing through of the waves from Naples to Trinacria, the sky overhead and the sea with its isles on either hand. His hearty good will to all men is most amiable. Not one cross word has he spoken, but on one occasion, the postboy snivelling, Signore, perdonate, questa è la mia patria, he confesses. To me, poor northerner, came something tear-like into the eyes. Spring, March 1st. March fans it, April christens it, and May puts on its jacket and trousers. It never grows up, but Alexandrian-like drags its slow length along, ever springing, bud following close upon leaf, and when winter comes, it is not annihilated, but creeps on mole-like under the snow, showing its face nevertheless occasionally by fuming springs and watercourses. So let it be with man. Let his manhood be a more advanced and still advancing youth, bud following hard upon leaf. By the side of the ripening corn, let's have a second or third crop of peas and turnips, decking the fields in a new green. So amid clumps of sear herds grass, sometimes flower the violet and buttercup spring-born. Homer, March 3rd. Three thousand years, and the world so little changed. The Iliad seems like a natural sound which has reverberated to our days. Whatever in it is still freshest in the memories of men was most childlike in the poet. It is the problem of old age, a second childhood exhibited in the life of the world. Phoebus Apollo went like night. Odele te ei, nicte ecos. This either refers to the gross atmosphere of the plague darkening the sun, or to the crescent of night rising solemn and stately in the east while the sun is setting in the west. Then Agamemnon darkly lowers on Calchas, prophet of evil. O sedei pidi lampado de ectin. Such a fire-eyed 
agamemnon as you may see at town meetings and elections as well here as in troy neighborhood a sunday scene march fourth here at my elbow sit five notable or at least noteworthy representatives of this nineteenth century of the gender feminine one a sedate indefatigable knitter not spinster of the old school who had the supreme felicity to be born in days that tried men's souls who can and not unfrequently does say with nestor another of the old school quote, but you are younger than i for time was when i conversed with greater men than you for not at any time have i seen such men nor shall see them as perithus and dryas and pimenolon or in one word sole shepherd of the people washington and when apollo has now six times rolled westward or seemed to roll and now for the seventh time shows his face in the east eyes well-nigh glazed long glassed which have fluctuated only between lambswool and worsted explore ceaseless some good sermon book for six days shalt thou labor and do all thy knitting but on the seventh forsooth thy reading opposite across this stone hearth sits one of no school but rather one who schools a spinster who spins not with elbow resting on the book of books but with eyes turned toward the vain trumpery of that shelf trumpery of sere leaves blossoms and waxwork built on sand that presumes to look quite as gay smell quite as earthy as though this were not by good rights the sun's day I marked how she spurned that innocent everyday book, Germany by de Stahl, as though a viper had stung her. Better to rest the elbow on the book than the eye on such a page. Poor book, this is thy last chance. Happy I who can bask in this warm spring sun which illumines all creatures as well when they rest as when they toil, not without a feeling of gratitude, whose life is as blameless, how blameworthy soever it be, on the Lord's day as on his day. Thus much at least a man may do. He may not impose on his fellows, perhaps not on himself, Thus much let a man do, confidently and heartily live up to his thought, for its error, if there be any, will soonest appear in practice, and if there be none, so much he may reckon as actual progress in the way of living. 
Homer. The poet does not leap, even in imagination, from Asia to Greece through mid-air. Neglectful of the fair sea and still fairer land beneath him, but jogs on humanly observant over the intervening segment of a sphere. Epimala polamitaxi Ori ata skioeda thalasa te ihiesa For there are very many shady mountains and resounding seas between. March 5th. How often, when Achilles, like one Diandica Merimirixen, whether to retaliate or suppress his wrath, has his good genius, like Pallas Athene, gliding down from heaven, the mo filiosa te kidomeni te stood behind him and whispered peace in his ear. Men may dispute about the fact whether a goddess did actually come down from heaven, calling it a poet's fancy, but was it not, considering the stuff that gods are made of, a very truth? The Age of Honey and to them rose up the sweet-worded Nestor, the shrill orator of the Pylians, and words sweeter than honey flowed from his tongue. E'en in old Homer's day was honey sweet, not yet is sour, tickling the palate of the blind old man, forsooth, with fresher sweet, then, as now, whene'er the leaky jar or driveling lips it daubed the festive board, proving a baneful lure to swarms of parasites, Homer's contemporaries, but alas, like Theon hero, vulnerable in heel. What to do? But what does all this scribbling amount to? What is now scribbled in the heat of the moment one can contemplate with somewhat of satisfaction, but alas, tomorrow, ay, tonight, it is stale, flat, and unprofitable. In fine is not, only its shell remains, like some red parboiled lobster shell which kicked aside never so often, still stares at you in the path. What may a man do and not be ashamed of it? He may not do nothing, surely, for straightway he is dubbed Doolittle, ay, christens himself first, and reasonably, for he was first to duck. But let him do something, is he less a doolittle? Is it actually something done, or not rather something undone? Or, if done, is it not badly done, or at most well done comparatively? Such is man, toiling, heaving, struggling, 
aunt liked to shoulder some stray unappropriated crumb and deposit it in his granary then runs out complacent gazes heavenward earthward for even pissmeyers can look down heaven and earth meanwhile looking downward upward there seen of men world seen deed delivered vanishes into all grasping night and is he doomed ever to run the same course can he not wriggling screwing self-exhorting self-constraining wriggle or screw out something that shall live respected intact intangible not to be sneezed at march sixth how can a man sit down and quietly pare his nails while the earth goes gyrating ahead amid such a din of sphere music whirling him along about her axis some twenty-four thousand miles between sun and sun but mainly in a circle some two millions of miles actual progress and then such a hurly-burly on the surface wind always blowing now a zephyr now a hurricane tides never idle ever fluctuating no rest for niagara but perpetual ran tan on those limestone rocks and then that summer simmering which our ears are used to which would otherwise be christened confusion worse confounded but is now ironically called silence audible and above all the incessant tinkering named hum of industry the hurrying to and fro and confused jabbering of men can man do less than get up and shake himself composition march seventh we should not endeavor coolly to analyze our thoughts but keeping the pen even and parallel with the current make an accurate transcript of them impulse is after all the best linguist and for his logic if not conformable to aristotle it cannot fail to be most convincing the nearer we approach to a complete but simple transcript of our thought the more tolerable will be the peace for we can endure to consider ourselves in a state of passivity or an involuntary action but rarely our efforts and least of all our rare efforts End of chapter two part one What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.